All right, let's take our Bibles, please, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and beginning in verse number 8. Is it too hot in here? Is it okay? It's not too hot? All right. Not yet? That's fine. If you all start falling asleep, I'll press the air conditioner off, the heating off. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. Follow along as I read through to verse 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you've not been with us for a few weeks, you won't know that we have started a new series on the, uh, the seven churches in Revelation and uh, the series we have entitled Correspondence from Christ and it is the letters to uh, the seven churches uh, which are listed before you here but just for uh, review, uh, the church at Ephesus which we looked at last week, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and uh, today we are looking at uh, the church at Smyrna. And uh, I would like to do a little bit of an introduction up the front here as I did last week. It'll take a few minutes and then we want to get into the actual uh, letter written by Christ here. So let me just give you a little bit of background and history. So we've already mentioned the fact that this, is being, this letter is written by the Lord Jesus, but it is transcribed or put down on scroll, if you would, by the Apostle John, who is currently banished on the Isle of Patmos for teaching and preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's where he is. Last week we looked at Ephesus, you can see it there, and then about 35, 40 kilometres north, uh, miles I should say, of Ephesus is this city called Smyrna, which will be the focus of some of our discussions. I'd like to talk just a uh, a few moments about the recipients here to give us again the background. Uh, As we said last week, the direct recipient of the letter is the angel of the church in Smyrna. We've already discussed the fact that the angel of the church refers to the leadership of the church, very likely the pastor or the elder given uh, at that particular time to the church. Uh, We are not given a great deal of information about the church at Smyrna. Tradition holds that it was another assembly started by the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys throughout Asia Minor, in Acts 19 and verse 10. We don't know that, and there is no other mention of Smyrna in the whole Bible except for Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2. Um, I love, in some ways, that we know very little. Here is a little assembly, perhaps, of Christian people started possibly by the Apostle Paul or one of his comrades. Uh, We don't know a lot about them, but we learn some things about them from this particular text. Uh, It's only mentioned here uh, and in Revelation chapter 1. However... I want to talk about the pastor at Smyrna. 
The Bible does not tell us who the pastor or the bishop of Smyrna was, but church history does. Now, we don't want to elevate church historical writings to the level of scripture. That's not what I'm wanting to do. But church historical documents suggest that we do know who the bishop or pastor of Smyrna was at this time. And it was likely a young man by the name of Polycarp. And uh, young adults around the room, we've done some study on this person in the past. Polycarp. Polycarp, whose name means much fruit, likely had his name changed when he was converted, had reportedly been a disciple of the Apostle John in Ephesus. Remember that the Apostle John was pastoring at the church at Ephesus for a period of time, and very likely this man, Polycarp, came to the faith and was trained under the Apostle John. Hard to get your head around how that would have been and what that would have looked like. And imagine being there. Imagine being tutored, tutored by the Apostle John. It is very likely that Polycarp became the pastor of Smyrna around the time of John's banishment to the Isle of Patmos. Church history suggests that Polycarp was a great defender of the apostles' doctrine and teaching. Things were going uh, in a bad way at this particular time and Polycarp is known for his tenacity for truth and upholding the doctrines of the apostles. Polycarp was the pastor at Smyrna For over 60 years. He was martyred at the age of 86 years of age. His tenacity for the truth, love for the people and concern for training up the next generation is recorded in church history. This is a godly man. The church at Smyrna record the account of their beloved pastor's martyrdom in a letter written to the church of Philomelium. Which says, and I'm going to read it to you in just a moment. They wrote a letter to another church to encourage them. And we have that document preserved for us about this man, Polycarp. 86 years of age, martyred. This is what we read. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. In other words, be strong as a man. No one saw who had spoken. But our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize. Apostatize. Uh, that's not right. But anyway, to, uh, to be a false teacher saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. Understand in history, an atheist is not what we call an atheist. Romans called Christians atheists because they didn't believe in multiplicity of gods. Okay, so this is what this meant here. Down with the atheists, down with the Christians. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the council, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp says... 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? Attempts to make him submit. So having said that, he's, the, the, uh, the proconsul says, I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour. 
and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. 86-year-old man. Remember. It was all done in the time it takes to tell. The crowd collected wood and bundles of sticks from the shops and public baths. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, undid his belt and removed his sandals. But when they went to fix him with nails, he said, leave me as I am for that. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. And then the prayer of Polycarp. So they simply bound him with his hands behind him. Uh, like a distinguished ram chosen from a great flock for sacrifice, ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. Preserved. This is what he said. The death of Polycarp. Then the fire was lit and the flame blazed furiously. We who were privileged, this is the church writing, to witness it saw a great miracle. And this is why we have been preserved to tell the story. The fire shaped itself into the form of an arch like uh, the sail of a ship when filled with the wind and formed a circle around the body of the martyr. Inside it, he looked not like flesh that is burnt, but like bread that is baked or gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Eventually, when those wicked men saw that his body was not being consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to pierce him with a dagger. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour, says Polycarp, the pastor of the church at Smyrna. Incredible. The city of Smyrna, let me give you a quick summary here. It's a rich and prosperous city, uh, 40 miles north of Ephesus. It's a beautiful place referred to as the crown of Ionia or the ornament of Asia. Uh, it was another free colony, colony just like Ephesus, which meant that they enjoyed the privilege of self-government. The city is renowned for its loyalty to the Roman Empire, which is always concerning to the Church of Jesus Christ. The city received its name from one of its principal products, a sweet perfume called myrrh, which was most often associated with embalming the dead. For this reason, some believe that this church represents the martyrs of all time and the sweet-smelling fragrance of their commitment to Christ. And that's a precious picture. Just like the myrrh is crushed, so were God's people by way of martyrdom. And so look with me this morning at Smyrna, the suffering church. Lord, that was a lengthy introduction, but as we look to your word now, I pray that you would give us uh, the necessary concentration, uh, the necessary uh, desire uh, to see and hear uh, about this church and the commendations that you make of them, uh, that we would see what it is you'd have us to do here in this, your assembly. Thank you for Smyrna. Thank you for Polycarp. Thank you for the testimony in history. 
uh, and for this passage. Help me to expose it correctly, accurately, and that it would be helpful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That was the quickest introduction of a church setting that probably you'll ever get, but critical to us understanding this text. Okay, So what I'd like you to see in verse number 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The first point I want you to note with me this morning here about this particular letter is the designations of Christ. The designations, the labels or the titles of Christ. In each of the seven letters, all of these seven letters, there are specifically chosen labels or designations that Jesus gives himself that play an important part in understanding what the letter is about. So to the church at Ephesus, he says earlier, I am Jesus who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What did Ephesus need to know? They needed to know that the Lord Jesus Christ was aware of their situation. He was in and around their church and he knew the heart that was growing cold towards him. Here, he says, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. These designations are chosen with a purpose. This church at Smyrna was about to undergo great tribulation, even to the point of martyrdom. The words of Christ here in the introduction to this letter are given to provide comfort and encouragement. So let's look here. What does he say first? The words of the first and the last. This speaks of Christ's deity This was a title for God in the Old Testament. This was unthinkable to call yourself this if you were in fact not God in the flesh. Because Isaiah 44 and verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, Jehovah, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. For Jesus to have said that, he claimed deity right there. And he's either a liar or he is speaking the truth. And we know from passages of scripture all over the place, this is not unusual for Jesus to refer to himself as God. He is God in the flesh. And the church at Smyrna needed not to fear, for God himself was on their side. Not just a great prophet, not just an apostle, but God. Furthermore, Physical death is simply the entrance into a fuller and more blessed knowledge of God. We need to remember that. Death is not something to be feared. Death is simply an entrance behind the veil into the presence of this great God. And so in saying the words of the first and the last, he gives great hope that Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who is God, is before and after. He is eternal. And then he refers to himself as one who died and came to life. Speaking of his incarnation, that God became man, took upon himself the form of flesh, and he died for the sins of mankind and was resurrected and is now alive. This gives great hope to this church who is about to have some of its members die. And you think, well, how could I possibly give hope to this particular church? Well, the Lord Jesus, who writes this letter, says, I died. I, as a human, died. And I rose again, speaking of victory. 
that he won over sin, Satan and the grave. And so the church at Smyrna can take great encouragement that the one who's writing this letter is from all eternity past to all eternity future. He has died and experienced what death is and has been raised again and they too will be raised again as well. What a precious, precious introduction to a letter to a church that's about to undergo incredible tribulation. And so we see the designations of Christ. Secondly, I'd like you to see the knowledge of Christ. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Note, please, in this particular letter, that this church does not receive any kind of rebuke or warning whatsoever. They are not told, get this right, get that right, etc. Like they did at Ephesus, you've got all these other great things going on, but your love has waned and you have grown cold towards. There is no such rebuke or exhortation here in this letter. Interesting. But what is Christ's knowledge of the church in Smyrna? Three ways it's seen. Firstly, he says, I know your tribulation. Tribulation. The first aspect of Christ's knowledge of the church, your tribulation. Remember that Smyrna is a Roman province. It's under the reign of the Domitian, who Domitian, who is the emperor, and Christians are compelled to worship the emperor. So in these cities that are run by the Roman Empire, that are free cities but are under Roman province and so forth, they are commanded to worship the emperor as God. If you're a Christian, you can't do that. Just like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and various others who were told you need to worship the king or you need to worship this or that. And they cannot do this because they are Christians and they understand that they are to worship one person and that is God. So can you imagine the kind of tribulation that they were met with? For saying, no, we will not worship the emperor. Their refusal was met with severe, if not fatal, consequences. And Smyrna, just like Ephesus, was a pagan city. It was engaged in all manner of evil practices. But the Christians would not participate. And they were considered troublemakers. And they ought to be eradicated. That was the concept of the Jews. That was the concept of the Romans. And so the Lord knows their tribulation. That's encouraging to me, church, because the Lord knows your tribulation. Now, we're not on this, we're not on this scale. We're not even nearly on this scale in our Alexandra area or wherever you've come from. We don't even understand mostly this kind of persecution. But what we do glean from here is that the Lord knows our tribulation. The Lord knows what it is that you are facing at this moment in time. That that great hurdle, that mountain of grief, that that struggle that uh, seems insurmountable. The Lord Jesus Christ knows it. And that's encouraging. But secondly, he doesn't just know their tribulation. Look what it says. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Interestingly, when you study this word out, you find that this church was in dire financial distress Uh, their congregational meetings were short and sweet their budget meetings 
didn't have Brother Fred in them because they didn't have any assets to talk about. They didn't have any money in the bank. Their profit and loss statements were pretty simple. We've got nothing. This word here has the idea of bankruptcy. They were just holding it together with limited funds, with limited everything. They were in serious poverty. No money, no assets, probably no budget. And the Lord knows that. But look what he says. By the way, you should do a study of the parentheses in the Bible. That is an amazing study. Every time you come across the brackets, study what's in the brackets. Here, look at what's in the brackets. I know your work, excuse me, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. That is a powerful statement from the head of the church. I know your tribulation, all that you're facing. I know you're in deep poverty and bankrupt on every sense financially, but you are rich. What possibly could they be considered rich in? Well, before we answer that question, consider the Lord Jesus' perspective here, though. For a a moment, just consider the Lord Jesus writes a letter and, and he knows everything about their finances as a church. He knows everything about their tribulation. And instead of saying, I know your poverty and I'm even going to provide for your poverty here. He doesn't say that. He says, but you are rich. How does the Lord Jesus view riches then? Well, it's not about what's in the bank. It's not about the asset table over here. It's not about the profit and loss and the balance sheet. It's not about any of that. It seems that the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned with something much greater than funds and assets. You are rich. What are you rich in, church at Smyrna? Well, it is not physical things. It cannot be, for they have none. But they are abundantly wealthy in spiritual matters. They understand the grace of God. They understand the faith in Jesus Christ. They understand love and truth and perseverance. And these attitudes and actions are of far greater worth to Jesus Christ in his church than money ever was. And isn't that countercultural? Don't we see even in church today, churches all over the place that are seeking to build monuments and buildings and and have all of these staff involved and possessions and everything supposed to just look absolutely perfect. And in actual fact, Jesus Christ is not concerned with the assets. He's concerned with the spiritual aspects of his church. And we ought to take inventory of that for ourselves today. Are we Poverty, are we in poverty physically? Maybe not. We're blessed. Look at all that we have here. But more importantly, are we spiritually enriched or are we spiritually bankrupt? God calls his church. The Lord Jesus calls his church to be rich in him and not in possessions. Glorious truth. A rich church is defined by spiritual maturity, faith, grace, perseverance and truth but then look at the third thing i know your tribulation your poverty but also know the slander of those that say they are jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan slander this is a tough one unbelieving jews were so quick to make accusations against the church of jesus christ They were against all of those who'd been converted from what they called the pure faith of Judaism, the orthodox faith. 
And many of these people had come out of orthodoxy and had now become Christians and those Jews hated them with a passion and they sought to bring them down. And history tells us that some of the accusation raised against the church in this time was cannibalism. They believed that uh, because of uh, this concept of the Lord's Supper and how it was celebrated, that somehow Christians were involved in cannibalism. And so they sought to bring that out as a big thing in the, in the Roman Empire, which was, by the way, uh, a Roman offence, cannibalism. Immorality, they sought to accuse the church of, based upon the perversion of one another giving each other a holy kiss, taught by the Apostle Paul. We're told in history that uh, one of the accusations that was uh, levelled against the church was breaking up homes and families because one spouse became a Christian. And when one spouse became a Christian, often the unbelieving spouse would uh, disappear and families were broken up and all sorts of things were happening there. And then there was lawbreakers and insurrection because they disobeyed the rules of the emperor worship. All of these things are blown out of proportion and not in their true context and they begin to slander these Christians who are seeking to honour the Lord. They wanted swift judgment against the Christians. And swift judgment did come and persecution was widespread. But this only fanned the flame of commitment to Jesus Christ. This is a vicious circle for these Jews because they want these people stamped out. And so they start to accuse them. And the Roman Empire comes in and they start dragging people away and killing people. And yet the fires of this Christianity burn brighter and brighter and brighter. And isn't that the truth with persecution? Look throughout the history of the church. When persecution is at its hottest, so is God's people's faith. And zeal, because that's all they've got. See, we've got so much now. We've got everything we could ever want. And when the Lord starts to remove some things, people start to disappear. But then those who are serious about true Christianity, their life begins to shine brighter than it ever did before. Slander. Look at what it says here. Uh, These slanderous Jews are considered members of the synagogue of Satan. Now, some people who like to say, well, Jesus was a really nice guy. He never said anything mean about anybody. He never he never actually said anything that was harsh or offensive. He has just called these Orthodox Jews members of the synagogue of Satan. That is the leader of our church. That is Jesus Christ. And I'm not wanting to paint him in a bad light whatsoever. I just want us to realize that what the world tells us about this lovely person who just pats all the little boys and girls on the head and wishes them all the best like some sort of cosmic Father Christmas, that's not this Jesus. He calls it what it is. And he says, these Orthodox Jews who are against my people, they are the synagogue of Satan. They're a gathering of a group of people and what a Uh, What a use of the word synagogue from the mouth of Jesus Christ as a Jew. They are a group of people who gather together with one purpose, to fulfill the wishes of their father who is the devil. None of this nice chatting, none of this sugar-coated Christian sort of uh, message that we hear from church pulpits. This Jesus Christ says it as it is. Synagogue. Of Satan. I want to ask you something this morning, and ladies who've been at our Bible study, this will be very fresh in your mind. Is Satan actively seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ? My word, he is. 
Is he seeking uh, to bring about the demise of Christianity? Is he seeking to uh, cause people to fall away and persecution to disrupt families and cause great grief and tribulation? Yes, he is. And we ought not be surprised by that. Should we be concerned when the hordes of hell mount an attack against us? No. We shouldn't be concerned. We should rejoice. Because it means that we're doing something for the cause of Christ. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't sit there and think, this doesn't make any sense. Why are the hordes of hell and the demons and the devil seeking to disrupt this church and these people? Why is, there, uh, why is this happening? We shouldn't be going, well, I wonder what is going This doesn't make any sense. In actual fact, Peter says, don't be surprised. Expect that it's coming. And let me say this to us, if I may, from a prophetic perspective, because it's Bible. It's coming, church, for us. It's coming. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and there will be dispersion, I guarantee it, because if we're going to stand up for the cause of Christ like the church at Smyrna, there will be persecution. And there may even be martyrdom one day. Let's look thirdly at the commands of Christ. In verse 10, we read, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I've said this already, but I want to say it again. The first thing we must be reminded of as we look at this verse is that a smooth sailing Christianity is never guaranteed. The prosperity gospel that some people uh, in their, their means of spreading poisonous lies say to people, if you come to Christ, it will all just be tranquility. That is part of the synagogue of Satan, that truth. That is not a truth whatsoever. That is a lie and it is deceitful and it is not true. We are not promised smooth sailing as a Christian. In fact, the Bible is replete with reminders that God's church will suffer persecution. Christianity is not a ticket to serenity in this life. It's the opposite. And in this portion, we find two commands that the Lord Jesus gives and then three predictions. But let's begin with the two commands here. He says, first of all, do not fear. The command to not fear in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Christ says to the church at Smyrna, Do not fear the persecution and trial that is coming. In other words, Smyrna, you've already undergone great difficulty and pressure, but it's only going to get worse. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Wouldn't you like a letter like that this morning? You're struggling with a bit of stuff there, but don't worry, because it's only going to get worse. That's exactly what we want. That's exactly the encouragement that we want in our human perspective, isn't it? But the instruction is do not fear. Fear is so debilitating as a Christian. Some of you here in this room, we have talked many times about fear. It is a sin and it denotes our lack of dependence upon the Lord. Fear is a problem with trust. It's rooted in unbelief and unbelief springs from pride and independence. 
And God says to his church, do not fear. The Lord Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. This same Jesus said while he was on earth, you have no reason to fear. I will give you peace. You'll have tribulation. Hey, there's no question about that. But in me, you will know I have overcome the world. And so will you. Isaiah 41 and verse 10 says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a promise. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, Moses records God saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. You say, I have a real problem with fear. Well, the thing that you need to understand more than anything is that God is with you always. You have no reason to fear because you accompanied his rod and his staff and his presence are with you continually. I have no reason to fear. And so the command of Christ to this church is it's going to get worse. But don't fear. Do not fear. And then secondly, he says, and we'll skip down just a little bit here so we can see the second command. He says at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death. Firstly, the command not to fear. And then secondly, the command to remain faithful unto death. Now, in our English, we don't necessarily see this. We don't see what was actually uh, a very clever play on words by the Lord Jesus Christ. This be faithful until death. Common phrase used by the commanders of the Roman army. They would encourage and inspire their legions as they would raise their right hand and say, fight for the glory of Rome and be faithful until death. That is a well-known phrase given by the Roman officers as they would try and marshal their troops to go into battle. And the Lord Jesus takes that same phrase and he commands of his troop the same thing, not for the glory of Rome, but for the glory of God. He says, be faithful until death. By the way, I'm saying until death for a reason. The scripture there says, or our text before it says, be faithful unto death. Until is better translated, and I'll explain that in just a little while. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the Christian life, again, is not a call to ease. It's a call to suffer and even die. The church at Smyrna were commanded to stay committed to the cause of Christ, even if it meant martyrdom. And Polycarp? begins pastoring at the church here in Smyrna as John writes this letter. And he circulates this second letter from the Lord Jesus to the church at Smyrna. Can you imagine being Polycarp, probably 25 years of age, served under the apostle John for a time, and the first thing that John sends to him that's recorded, at least in Scripture, is a letter from Jesus that says, you're about to possibly You're about to go through incredible trial. It's going to be hard. Imagine that. Our battle cry, church, is be faithful until death. Paul said, it is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, 
Now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. So do not fear and remain faithful. Then I want you to see, fourthly, the predictions of Christ. The predictions of Christ. Look at what is said here in verse 10 again. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Several predictions are made here by the Lord Jesus Christ. The first prediction is the prediction of persecution. This God-honouring church has already experienced persecution and suffering, but the Lord Jesus says, you're about to suffer. I might be inclined to say, what's been happening already? If, if I'm about to suffer, what's all this other stuff that's already been happening? Well, you're about to suffer more, church. And the Lord Jesus predicts this persecution. And behind this suffering is the invisible power of Satan, who's been given freedom to test the church for a while. And we, we sung it earlier about the refining fire. The purpose is not harm. God has given uh, Satan the freedom at this time with the church at Smyrna to bring about suffering and persecution, not to harm his church, but to help it. Satan's intention is to harm, always. Satan's intention is to bring about a, a great disunity and a destruction of God's... But God holds that church. They cannot be moved unless he says so. And so the prediction of persecution. But then we also see the prediction of prison. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Some of the members of this assembly are going to be assaulted and thrown behind the iron curtain. Families are going to be broken up. Injuries are going to be incurred. And yet it's all part of God's plan. Imagine reading this. So imagine if I came here this morning with a letter from Jesus Christ, were that the case and possible, and I said, well, guess what? This next week, some of us are going to prison. Some of us are going to be injured. Some of us are going to be assaulted, and it's possible that some of us are even going to be killed. I don't know. I think it might change our life a bit. I think our priorities would change. I think perhaps there'd be an inversion of what our current plans are for this next week. Well, I've got my calendar on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and so I'm going to do this Things are going to change. And this is already a church that understands persecution. The prediction of prison. It's coming, says the Lord Jesus. Then thirdly, the prediction of death. The final frontier that some of God's soldiers at Smyrna will cross is that of death. And it might even be that the Lord Jesus, in writing this letter to the angel of the church, which I believe is Polycarp, is speaking directly to his pastor and says... In about 60 years or so, pastor, you're going to die for me. And even in Polycarp's writing, uh, the writing from the church, remember it said that he had understood the predictions uh, that he would possibly die, that God had already made that known. him. I don't know for sure if that's what it's about or whether it's about a different group of people in that church, but the prediction of death, it's coming. He may have been speaking directly to the beloved pastor Polycarp. But you know what's interesting is history itself, history, secular history and Christian history bears record that all of what Christ predicted came to pass. All of it. Just another wonderful little example that what Jesus says is going to happen will happen.
the predictions of Christ. But then lastly, as we draw to a close, I want you to see, apart from all the the gloom and the hardship that is before us, the Lord Jesus begins with incredible comments about who he is and he ends with some incredible promises, the promises of Christ. Look at the end of verse number 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There are two glorious, glorious promises given here by the Lord Jesus. He begins with designations about who he is. I'm the first and the last and I'm the one who is dead and is alive. And that should encourage you. And then the rest of it is just a sandwich of tribulation in the rest of that. And then he gets to the end and he says, I've got some promises though for you too. And here they are. First of all, the victor's crown. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The Stephanos, the victor's crown. It was traditionally the wreath given at an Olympic game when someone would run and they would endure that marathon and they would be given this temporal wreath that would eventually crumble, disintegrate. That's not what he's talking about here. And I just want to make a comment about this, be faithful unto, unto death. Most translations change that to be faithful until death. And the reason for that is not all of us are called to die for Christ. And not all of us, therefore, should uh, receive the crown of life if it is only for those who are martyrs. But that's not what the text says. The Bible tells us that in enduring suffering of all kinds, every single Christian will be given the crown of life because they remain faithful until death. The point here is that the Christian continues to serve the Lord right throughout life. It's not about a martyr's crown, as some would say. And the reason I know that is James 1 and verse 12 says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is not an elite group of Christians who get this crown of life. This is for every Christian who is a genuine, true Christian who will remain faithful to the Lord. As opposed to those who say they are Christians but do not stand the test of time. This is the crown of life, the victor's crown. And what a joy, what a joy on that day, the final day when we stand before Christ and he gives to us the victor's crown for having lived in accordance with his word and genuine faith. And then not that we get the crown, but that we take that crown and we cast it at the feet of Jesus Christ. All my life's work, my endurance, my hardships, my tribulations, all the trials that I have experienced, the slander, uh, the death, whatever the case may be, here I am given this crown of life and I am able to place it at the one who matters more to me than all of eternity, Jesus Christ. What a privilege. Crown of life. The victor's crown. Secondly, we see the promises of Christ. We see here eternal life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2 and verse 11, it says, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who is not hurt by the second death is none other than the believer, the true believer. Every genuine Christian may be hurt in the first death, physical life. You may be. I may be. 
You may know people who have been hurt, have been, had their life extinguished physically, but they can never experience eternal damnation in the second death. The promise of eternal life. Church, that is ours. As a Christian, if you are a genuine Christian, you have a crown of life you can look forward to for enduring, that you can cast at the Saviour's feet, and you have eternal life that is guaranteed because the one who died is now alive. Precious, precious promises. And so what is it that we ought to learn? What is it that we at Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church should glean from the church at Smyrna? Well, if there may be many things that the Spirit moves in your heart on, but certainly that we are to be faithful. We are to endure. If we had time, I'd read to us James chapter 1 that tells us that the trying of our faith works perseverance and patience. And it's a worthy uh, subject to deal with suffering. And, And as the Lord gives us opportunity to suffer, we need to rejoice in that suffering because it is uh, providing for us a greater sense of glory and a greater privilege of partaking of the sufferings of Christ. Like Paul said, I count myself worthy to have suffered for his name. What a privilege. What a joy. The church at Smyrna were an unusual church. No rebukes, no exhortations to get things right. Just keep on keeping on, Jesus says to them. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time looking at the the life of this suffering church. Thank you for the testimony through history of Polycarp. For 80 and 6 years I have served him. Not many of us in this place can say that. Not many of us have been confronted with a stake at which we are to burn. Not many of us have, or ever will, stand before our accusers and say, there's no need to nail me. My faith will keep me here. We know so little. We understand so little about this matter of suffering. Help us to understand it more. And I know that in praying that, Uh, I call each of us to a place of suffering and hardship, but I also recognise through the pages of Scripture that only as we suffer, only as we are given an opportunity to, to burn, so to speak, will we shine in a greater and brighter way. We see the lives of John the Baptist, a burning and a shining light, whose head was removed. We see Stephen... We read about him before, a man who filled with the power of the Spirit of God and was able to preach the gospel and have a great impact on that day and that community that he was involved in. And because of that, he was stoned. Apostle Paul beheaded. Apostle Peter crucified upside down. James thrown from the top of the temple and then stoned. So many others who have demonstrated such commitment that we know so little about. Lord, help us to be faithful until death. Help us to not fear. Uh, And Lord, as persecution uh, grows greater in our Western world, help us to embrace it. Help us to be ready and engaged in this battle. And Lord, we pray as we sing this last song that it would be true. May the Lord find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.